Hello and welcome to those who are joining us on Zoom and live on Facebook to the Dialogue Fireside on Fe February 21st, 2021. I'm Taylor Petrie conducting today on behalf of the Dialogue Foundation Board. Board members Michael Austin and Chris Kimball are also part of our group today. And we're using our webinar format on Zoom and running a live stream on Facebook. We're also recording this program and we'll post the recording as soon as it's available on YouTube and our podcast feed. More than 50 years of dialogue content, articles, essay, poetry, and art is available online at dialoguejournal.com. These dialogue fireside sessions are posted uh, on various feeds as, as we mentioned. We're also grateful for our dedicated audience. If you're enjoying these events, please consider supporting Dialogue by subscription or donation at dialoguejournal.com slash subscribe. Tonight, we're pleased to hear from Jill Mulvey-Durr with her remarks to, entitled Missing and Restoring Meaning. Jill Durr has studied the history of Latter-day Saint women for more than four decades. She worked in the history department of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints under the direction of two church historians, and K. Jensen. In the course of research and teaching at Brigham Young University, she became associate professor of church history and later managing director of the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Church History. In addition to her many articles in, scholar and, uh, in scholarly books and journals, she has co-edited or co-authored four books, Women's Voices, An Untold History of Latter-day Saints with Kenneth W. Godfrey and Audrey M. Godfrey, Women of the Covenant with Janeth Russell Cannon and Maureen Ersenbach Beecher, Eliza R. Snow, The, Com the Complete Poetry, and Eliza's, Eliza, The Life and Faith of Eliza R. Snow with Karen Lynn Davidson, and The First 50 Years of Relief Society, Key Documents in Latter-day Saint Women's History with, Carolyn, with Carol Cornwall Madsen. Kate Holbrook and Matthew Grow. She and her husband, C. Brooklyn Durr, are the parents of four children and 11 grandchildren, and they reside in Holiday, Utah. After Jill's remarks, we'll be opening up for Q&A. You can submit comments on the chat and I will help to moderate those comments. Please, of course, be respectful in the chat and discussion. Our opening musical number is Sonata in G Major, Second Movement, Grave, by Giovanni Battista Samar, uh, Samartini. Uh, Alicia Kaylin Durr is on the piano and Henry Durr is on cello. Our invocation will be offered by Francine Benyon, who served on the general boards of the Young Women and Relief Society in the 1970s and 1980s. She has several essays in Dialogue, Sunstone, and the Improvement Era, and is a longtime friend of Jill's. Our benediction will be offered by Brooklyn Durr, Jill's husband, who was the Sahili Professor of International Business and the Director of Global Business Management Center at the Marriott School of Management at Brigham Young University. We'll go ahead and start with our musical number.
Our invocation will be offered by Francine Binion. Our God, we thank thee for this time together. We appreciate Jill's fine mind and good heart and her commitment to goodness and to doing all she can to help others, including us. We thank thee, our Father, for thy encouragement for us to become more like thee and pray that this evening thou wilt be with Jill and with all of us, with whatever we need that we might grow more like thee, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Hello, good evening. I uh, want to thank Henry and Alicia for their exquisite music. I'm, I'm grateful to be blessed by their talents. And uh, I'm glad that you can be blessed by that tonight as well. And I want to thank my dear friend Francine for her beautiful prayer. And I thank Taylor for the invitation to be with you this evening. I think the dialogue firesides have been really uh, meaningful. What a, great, uh, what a great contribution. 50 years ago, I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts in a shotgun apartment just off Mass Avenue at Central Square, 22 Magazine Street, number three. Spring of 1971, marked the last months of my Master in Arts of Teaching program at the Harvard Ed School. And I was still taking a few classes in English literature and completing a round of student teaching at the Martin Luther King Jr. Middle School in Dorchester, bordering Roxbury's all black neighborhood. My four roommates all worked in Cambridge and in Boston. My bedroom fronted Magazine Street I could see from my window the historic red brick Gothic revival First Baptist Church at Central Square, and I often listened for its chimes striking the hour. Some events from that time are recorded in my erratic journal, but one event that never found its way into my journal has remained in my mind. Women marching down the street, women determined and enthusiastic. The group captured my attention. At the time, I may have read about them in the paper, but the purpose of their march did not lodge in my memory. My focus was on my teaching, my students, my studies, my roommates, and my ward. Only later did I realize that I'd had a great view of feminism on the rise. It's possible that I witnessed the historic International Women's Day March of March 6, 1971, when women strode down Mass Ave on route to Memorial Drive to take over and occupy an old Harvard owned building and establish the first women's center in the United States. A recent film entitled Left on Pearl documents their march. It's possible that some women deliberately marched one street beyond Pearl to turn left on Magazine Street. I'm still trying to figure out exactly what I witnessed that cold spring day in 1971. 
It seems as one becomes older, wrote T.S. Eliot in one of his four quartets, which I'll draw from throughout my remarks. It seems as one becomes older that the past has another pattern and ceases to be mere, a mere sequence or even development. But the sudden illumination, we had the experience but missed the meaning. An approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form beyond any meaning we can assign to happiness. Granted some ellipses there, but I think the intent is intact. I had the experience, but missed the meaning. An approach to the meaning restores the experience. Past, experience, meaning, restoring. I'm not certain how all of these fit together, but I know they have significance for me. First of all, I think experience and meaning are layered. Like learning a language, we start out understanding or reading a few words, being able to understand what is said and then being able to understood, be understood when we speak. I think my acquaintance with understanding and women's history, with understanding women's history has also been layered. It too relates to my years in Boston. Formidable Latter-day Saint women in Boston began researching Mormon women past and present and brought forth the iconic summer 1971 Pink Dialogue. Two years later in the spring of 1973, the issue's editor Claudia Bushman and her cohorts held a gathering in Claudia's home and featured as a guest speaker, Maureen Ersenbach, who had recently joined Leonard Arrington's and joined Leonard Arrington, the new church historian, as part of his research and writing team known as the History Division within the newly organized Church Historical Department, formerly the Church Historian's Office. I heard Maureen speak, was fascinated that she had so much to say about Eliza Arsenal, whom I knew only as a writer of hymns. And after returning to Utah that fall, I stumbled my way into an internship under Maureen in Arrington's History Division. A total novice, I started cataloging the poetry of Eliza Snow, and that plunged me into various newspapers, including the Women's Exponent, the Deseret News, the Young Women's Journal, and into women's diaries, journals, letters, and autobiographies, the rich trove of women's personal writings at the archives. I was excited as I excavated the experience of these women. They were not my ancestors, but I felt a kinship with them single women as I had been, school teachers as I had recently been, wives, mothers, stepmothers as I had recently become. I found what Claudia and others had already discovered. Their stories help us to see possibilities for our own lives. The experience of other women's lives gave meaning to my own, meaning I had missed in my own experience until I began discovering their experiences. I found nobility, dignity, and worth. I found strength to deal with conflict and disappointment, inspiration, and access to heavenly power in ways I had never imagined. I found the importance of making one's voice heard and the significance of unity and collective action. All of these things were exciting to me at a new moment when the archives and women's history was just opening up. Wrote Eliot, the past experience revived in the meaning is not the experience of one life only, 
but of many generations. For Latter-day Saint women, the collective experience of many generations is found in Relief Society minutes, histories, stories, and other documents. Seeking to understand that experience became a large part of my life's work as a historian. I was introduced to the 19th Century Relief Society through assisting Maureen Ersenbach, Beecher by then, with her study of Eliza R. Snow, Secretary of the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo, and its second general president. I was introduced to 20th Century Relief Society through preparing for oral history interviews with Belle Spafford immediately following her 1974 release as the society's ninth president, a position she had held for nearly 30 years. Under President Spafford, the Relief Society General Board had published a history of Relief Society in 1966, but the scholarly approach to history that came with Arrington's appointment as church historian precipitated new questions, new possibilities, and a new dive into the treasure trove of documents in the church archives. Among the most significant of those documents was the volume containing the minutes of the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo, a record of some 33 meetings held between 1842 and 1844. Joseph Smith addressed six of the women's meetings and his sermons constitute the only contemporaneous record of teachings that Joseph Smith directed specifically to women as a group. The precious record that left Nauvoo in the care of Eliza Snow remained with her and eventually found its way via one of her successors, Bathsheba W. Smith, into the church historian's office. Actually, in 1855, Eliza herself had lent the book to the church historian so that some of Joseph Smith's addresses to the Relief Society could be incorporated into the history of the church then being compiled. The editors of this new manuscript history selected excerpts from three of Joseph's sermons to include in their compilation, but redacted them, that is, changed some wording in ways they believed clarified what Joseph was teaching. Revisions of diary entries and minutes were commonplace in producing what is uh, known as the manuscript history, later published by B.H. Roberts as the History of the Church by Joseph Smith, that six volumes in blue that we're all familiar with. On the Joseph Smith Papers website, you can now see the source documents for that compiled manuscript history. Selected excerpts from the Nauvoo Minutes, particularly from the 17 March founding meeting and Joseph's remarkable 28th of April address, appeared in the Women's Exponent and later in the Relief Society magazine, and then in 1942 and 1966 in general board histories of Relief Society. In most cases, however, the excerpts quoted or published were taken from the widely available history of the church and not from the minute book itself. Naturally, Maureen Ersenbach Beecher's study of Eliza R. Snow led her to the original minutes inscribed mostly in Eliza's handwriting. Likewise, Linda King Newell and Valene Tippett's Avery were beginning their biography of Emma Smith, the society's first president, and planned to review all of the minutes, not just those included in the history of the church. The minute book could be accessed at the church archives on microfilm, and as I recall, Linda made her own transcription of much of that record from the microfilm, a tedious work. Maureen was able to call upon the history division's inimitable volunteer typist, Edith Jenkins Romney, 
who skillfully transcribed many original documents for the team, and we loved her for that. And this was the 1970s when transcriptions were made on an IBM selective, Selectric typewriter. The transcription in its entirety was completed by 1979. What was clear as the transcription emerged was that the redactions, the edits made in the 1850s by church historians and approved by Brigham Young in the 12, were significant. This came to light at a moment when the field of women's history was emerging and scholars were reassessing women's status in and contributions to politics and economics, the arts and religion. Since Joseph had proclaimed the minutes to be the society's constitution and law, what did this constitution say about the religious authority of Latter-day Saint women? Was Emma Smith's ordination as Relief Society president ordination to a priesthood office? Why was she ordained to serve for life? When Joseph turned the key to women, was he giving them priesthood keys? What does it mean to be organized in the order of the priesthood or according to the order of God connected with the priesthood? Why did Joseph encourage women to exercise the gifts of the spirit, speak in tongues, prophecy, and heal, prophesy and heal the sick? What did, he mean, what did he mean when Joseph told the women he intended to make of this society a kingdom of priests as in Enoch's day? Why did a member of the Nauvoo Temple Committee tell the women that their relief society was raised by the Lord to prepare us for the great blessings which are for us in the house of the Lord in the temple? What was Newell Whitney telling Relief Society women after receiving his endowment in May, 1842? In the beginning, God created man, male and female and bestowed upon man certain blessings peculiar to a man of God of which women partook so that without the female, all things cannot be restored to the earth. It takes all to restore the priesthood. These solemn and weighty questions have now been churning for decades. Since the 1970s, the religious authority of Latter-day Saint women has been a matter of intense discussion, even debate. Lectures, conference presentations, newspaper and journal articles, books aplenty have taken on these and other questions raised by the intersection of feminist consciousness and the minutes of the Female Relief Society of Nauvoo and other women's documents. These represent a small fragment of a complex past a past which, as we have increasingly recognized, has long been oversimplified. Restoring fragments of the experience of our first generation sisters, we have been searching for answers, understanding, meanings, missing or lost. I feel, as Elliot expressed, there is only the fight to recover what has been lost and found and lost again and again and now under conditions that seem unpropitious, but perhaps neither gain nor loss. For us, there is only the trying, the rest is not our business. For decades now, I along with other women and men have been engaged in the trying, that is in the effort to restore not only a record, but revive experience and meaning that have been missing. I will share just a fragment or two from my own trying within the context of my work at the Church History Department and Brigham Young University. Around 1976, as Maureen and I examined the original minutes, we discovered that Joseph Smith had not announced to women as was commonly celebrated at Relief Society March 17 birthday parties, 
I now turn the key in your behalf as recorded in the history of the church, but rather I now turn the key to you as recorded in Eliza Snow's minutes. To Maureen and I at the, and me at the time, the difference in the two wordings seemed so significant that we felt the Relief Society General Board should be made aware of this and other mentions of priesthood in the minutes. So we approached members of the General Board of Barbara Bradshaw Smith, 10th General President of the Relief Society. Some board members reacted as we had and decided to make a presentation to their general authority advisors. They did, and it was not well received. Hmm, this was not as simple as we thought it would be. The words in the minutes did not speak for themselves. The new historical information being published by members of Arrington's History Division team had already raised some hackles among some church leaders. The surging movement for women's rights and equality seemed threatening to some people. While stories of women's faith were always welcomed, questions about precedence for Latter-day Saint women's religious authority were not. The history division, which by now included Carol Cornwall Madsen, was not the only women's history game in town. Interest, research, and publications regarding the history of Latter-day Saint women was mounting. Eager and able women began honing their undergraduate and graduate skills to write biographical essays or explore women's engagement in polygamy, suffrage, social services, and the arts. Some enrolled in graduate programs. A diversity of experiences was being revived by a great diversity of women. At the end of 1979, the year Edith Romney completed her transcription of the Nauvoo Relief Society Minute Book, President Barbara Smith advanced the idea that Relief Society needed a fuller account of its history, one that was both globally conscious and included new scholarship. Deseret Book, with the support of Elder G. Homer Durham, then executive director of the History Division, invited Janeth Russell Cannon and me to co-author that history. With my family responsibilities expanding, I had just left the History Division. Intelligent, energetic, and gracious Janeth, a former counselor to Barbara Smith in the presidency, would work, would work uh, together with me on the semi-official project. Meanwhile, Maureen, now with the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Church History at BYU, proceeded with careful analysis of the Nauvoo Minutes, which she presented at both professional history meetings and early BYU women's conferences, though her hopes for annotating and publishing the Nauvoo Minute book were not realized. However, the Romney transcript received some covert circulation and Eliza's record of Joseph Smith's six sermons to the women were published in 1980 in the words of Joseph Smith, the contemporary accounts of the Nauvoo discourses of the prophet Joseph, edited by Andrew Ehat and Lyndon Cook. The decade of the 1980s witnessed expanding publications in a variety of venues that addressed the questions of women's religious authority, particularly their relationship to priesthood and their exercise of spiritual gifts, especially the gift of healing. All of this was part of the effort to recover women's experiences and make meaning for a new generation. Working in connection with the Relief Society General Presidency and Board and Deseret Book was working on the inside and it presented me with a particular perspective as well as certain limitations and certain privileges. Janeth and I had a little room on the second floor of the Relief Society building where we did our work and kept some files. 
This was before the building was remodeled to include offices for the leaders of all three women's organizations. At the April 1984 conference of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now the Community of Christ, Church President Wallace B. Smith read an inspired document authorizing the ordination of women. The document, which also looked to the future building of a temple, was accepted by the conference and became RLDS Doctrine and Covenants, Section 156. Mormon History Association was scheduled to, scheduled to meet in Provo that year, and the program committee decided sometime after the announcement that there should be a panel added to the program that would provide several perspectives on this new inspired document. I was asked to participate on the panel along with Paul Edwards and Madeline Brunson, both of whom are RLDS. Since Mormon History Association at that time was usually held in mid-May, it seems that the invitation gave me just two or maybe three weeks to put together a response from a Latter-day Saint perspective. I felt totally inadequate and unsure of what to say, especially given tensions regarding women's authority so prevalent at that time. I'm sure Carol Madsen's extraordinary essay on Mormon women in the temple was at least drafted. And I know I drew from that as well as from the Nauvoo Minutes. The little miracle for me came when one morning I walked into Janeth in my second floor room and no one was there. On the table lay a stack of bound Relief Society magazines, several years worth. This was curious because they had not been there before. I picked up the volume on top, number 40, volume 46, 1959. As I was thumbing through it, the October 1948, the, the October 1958 Relief Society conference talk by Joseph Fielding Smith caught my eye. Relief Society, an aid to the priesthood. I'm not sure this talk would seem remarkable by today's standards, but for me, it was the official voice I needed. It gave me permission to say what I wanted to say, to be true to the scholarship as I understood it, and also speak within the bounds that would keep me from contradicting what general authorities had taught. Here are a couple of quotes from the Joseph Fielding Smith talk. His words combined with the Relief Society minutes really became the backbone of my MHA panel remarks later published in Dialogue. Quote, you sisters who labor in the house of the Lord can lay your hands upon your sisters and with divine authority because the Lord recognizes positions which you occupy. A person may have authority given to him or a sister to her to do certain things in the church that are binding and absolutely necessary for our salvation, such as the work that our sisters do in the house of the Lord. They have authority given unto them to do some great and wonderful things sacred to the Lord and binding just as thoroughly as are the blessings that are given by the men who hold the priesthood. You sisters, through your faithfulness and your obedience, will find your place in the kingdom of God when it is established in its fullness and righteousness. It is within the privilege of the sisters of this church to receive exaltation in the kingdom of God and receive authority and power as queens and priestesses. And I am sure if they have that power, they have some power to rule and reign, else why would they be priestesses? End quote. I believe President Oaks has in recent years quoted this talk, but in 1984, it wasn't really out there. 
Not that my remarks at the Mormon History Association Conference were of any lasting importance to anyone but me. After all, this discussion was certainly in the air. But this study undergirded my hopes and framed my perspective in writing the history of Relief Society and the work I've done in subsequent years. Barbara Smith's successor, Barbara Woodhead Winder, 11th General President of the Relief Society, also lent her support to the writing of the history, which took many more years than we ever imagined, certainly more than Desert Book had ever imagined. Janeth and I agreed that I would write the chapters up to 1921, and she would write later 20th century chapters. There was no way I could deal with 19th century Relief Society without featuring women speaking in tongues, prophesying, and healing. Linda King Newell's study of women's gifts of the spirit, a gift given and a gift taken, had appeared in 1981 and precipitated widespread discussion and concern and a profound sense of loss. One day I went to talk to Barbara Winder about the fact that I would be including examples of some difficult subjects, including plural marriage and women, women's healing. She spoke of the concern of male church leaders because they simply did not have the information to answer the questions then being raised by women. She counseled me to craft a narrative that helped people understand both the practice of healing and the end of the practice. She was gracious and understanding and invited me to kneel with her in prayer, which she offered. Janeth and I got along splendidly, but did not always agree on how or how much to feature such controversial questions. So I felt encouraged by Barbara Winder's support. I likewise received remarkable encouragement from President Winder's successor, Elaine Jack, who with her counselors, Aline Clyde and Sheiko Okazaki, was eager to familiarize herself with the minutes and the history as her presidency and board looked forward to 1992 and the sesquicentennial Relief Society celebration. They received copies of Edith Romney's transcript and used it profusely as they planned the celebration. Women of Covenant, the story of Relief Society was published toward the end of the sesquicentennial year. That would not have been possible if Maureen Beecher had not agreed to become a third author in 1988, just before my husband Brooke and I took our family away for two years to Switzerland, where we taught, where he taught in an international business school. Ironically, and perhaps serendipitously, Janeth and her husband Ted were serving as president and matron of the Frankfurt Temple at the time. So Janeth and I connected in Germany and continued some work on the history there while Maureen held down the fort here in Utah. I want to emphasize the support of women leaders such as Presidents Smith, Winder, and Jack, as well as their successors. Some may consider them to be unaware or unable to understand the questions that trouble their sisters. My experience leads me to believe that they are concerned and searching and pushing forward, often more, more forcefully than some of us realize. Women of Covenant received mixed reviews, a nice book, a reference book, reminds me of homemaking meeting. I know all the early history, only the 20th century information was new to me. Some saw the history as a record of significant achievements by dedicated women across decades. Some as an accurate representation of Latter-day Saint women's lives. Others, as one scholar noted, a litany of loss. This pervasive sense of loss was hard to counter 19th and early, early 20th century Relief Society women 
were engaged in significant collective action economically and politically. For a time, they stored grain, ran a hospital and a newspaper, and for 50 years, the church's social services. Their vivacity, creativity, intelligence, spirituality, and confidence shines through in the pages of the Women's Exponent and the Relief Society magazine. Committed to their families, they maintained a public presence. Still, over time, some of the patterns of organization and practice outlined in the Nauvoo Minutes were tempered or like women's healing, terminated. The 1960s, 70s correlation movement centralized, standardized, simplified in ways that diminished local autonomy and collective responsibility and visibility. While at the same time, making possible the church's international growth. I recall talking with Maureen in her Smith Institute office at BYU. We discussed how to frame a history filled with considerable disappointments and setbacks for women, the vast majority of whom still carried on and moved forward. We decided that only their faith allowed them to endure what might've been just as difficult, if not more than wet and wintry trekking and devastating death. They had determined to maintain the covenants they had made to God and to one another. That discussion spawned our title, Women of Covenant. This was one part of the trying that Elliot wrote about, the fight to recover what has been lost, both the experience and the meaning. Writing a Relief Society history that quoted the minutes and acknowledged changes over time was part of a recovery effort, but not all. Maureen moved to Canada and left further labor on publishing those seminal Nauvoo minutes to Carol Cornwell Madsen and me. With encouragement from Richard E. Turley Jr. at the Church History Department, we began to work on Eliza's record as part of a larger collection of Relief Society documents covering the Society's first 50 years from its founding in 1842 to its Jubilee year in 1892. With this approach, we could carefully document how ideas, policies, and practices developed over time. This iteration of the work began at BYU Smith Institute with an initial team of women that included Carol and me, along with Jenny Reeder, Cherry Bushman Silver, and Cherie Maxwell Bench. Then when the Institute was disbanded, the project moved with me to the Church History Department in Salt Lake City. There the groundwork had been laid for a new kind of department set to publish the Joseph Smith papers and other essential church documents and to have a strong online presence with digital offerings, as well as a new church historian's press. Elder Marlon K. Jensen, recently called as church historian, demonstrated his commitment to scholarship and transparency. As I took on new administrative responsibilities at the department, my work on our collection of documents was put on the back burner for a time. But when happily and blessedly I was relieved of administrative duties, I returned to the half-finished project then there was a different kind of miracle, a blessing that most historians do not receive, an expanded team of experts and scholars. Kate Holbrook and Matthew J. Groh joined Carol and me as co-editors. We received help from extraordinarily competent research assistants who could, not, who could give not just the Nauvoo minutes, but additional documents, the annotation and cross-references so greatly needed to enhance understanding. Specialists at the Joseph Smith Papers published in Abu Minutes online as part of the JSP Administrative Records series. Superb editors tightened the unwieldy manuscript and the support from church historian Marlon K. Jensen and his assistants was indispensable. 
All of this made possible the 2016 publication of the first 50 years of Relief Society, key documents in Latter-day Saint women's history, the centerpiece of which is the Nauvoo Minutes. For me, this fulfilled many years of hoping and searching and trying. Not that the Nauvoo Minutes hadn't been out there uh, before, but now they were widely available to church members around the world, to men and women leaders and outside scholars. The new tome placed them in context. It was cause for celebration. Did the publication have a meaningful impact? Well, it did, I would say, but not the minutes or the first 50 years alone. I witnessed institutional cooperation and support across many years that made publication possible. But other lectures, articles, books, blogs, podcasts from those working outside the institution also had a tremendous effect. My husband, a longtime teacher of organization development, assures me that lasting change comes as a result of both internal and external forces. I respect those who have labored independently without the kind of institutional support I have had across the years, nor the institutional restrictions. Their freedom has allowed them to raise and explore significant questions regarding women's religious authority. External and internal forces make change happen. And changes have happened. Mention of and comments regarding women's connection to priesthood power and authority through callings and temple ordinances have increased. I love the comment of Primaries General President Joy D. Jones at the April 2020 General Conference. Quote, my personal admission today, I love this, is that as a woman, I didn't realize earlier in my life that I had access through my covenants to the power of the priesthood. Sisters, I pray that we will recognize and cherish priesthood power, she said, end quote. This is progress. It may not be all of the answers we're searching, but it is progress. And I am grateful for the progress I have seen over the past 40 years when I have studied history, but particularly the past 10 years. I acknowledge this isn't enough or soon enough or fast enough for some people. Let me turn back to my view in 1971 from a magazine street window. I was aware of the march, but I did not grasp its meaning. In some ways across the years, I have relived that same view from inside the window, a kind of obliviousness at times. Sometimes the meaning that is missing is acknowledgement of our own unawareness of others, of their perspective, of their effort, or of their pain. To the extent that I can claim that unawareness, I hope to repent and to be, as Eliot wrote, restored by that refining fire and renewed and transfigured in another pattern. That refinement to a higher, holier pattern is possible only through Jesus Christ. For all of us, there is not only the trying, but the Savior. Ultimately, as we come to him as promised in 2 Nephi, they also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. Jesus Christ is the Holy One who brings us to wholeness, line upon line, grace for grace. John's testimony of Christ as recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 93 has always had a particular resonance for me. And he received not of the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. And thus he was called the son of God because he received not of the fullness at the first. 
I give unto you these sayings that you may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that you may come unto the Father in my name and in due time receive of his fullness. For if you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness and be glorified in me as I am in the Father. Therefore, I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. The meaning that God restores to us individually or collectively is always beyond our imagining, as Eliot expressed it. What you thought you came for is only a shell, a husk of meaning from which the purpose breaks only when it is fulfilled, if at all. Either you had no purpose or the purpose is beyond the end you figured and is altered in fulfillment. I have experienced and celebrated that altered fulfillment on more than one occasion. As we all, uh, as so many of us are familiar with this uh, part of what Eliot wrote, what we call the beginning is often the end and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. At a sacrament meeting in Torrey, Utah on Sunday, April 28, 2019, I sat with my husband and listened to two wonderful talks on prayer. During those talks, there burst into my mind the memory of me as a girl kneeling in prayer, gazing at the set of six or seven small dolls attached to the wall above my head. They represented several first ladies of the United States dressed in the formal fashions of their day. For several nights, I prayed that wall would open up and let me enter their world. As I sat in that Tory sacrament meeting, I had the sudden illumination that across the decades, I had actually entered the world of the remarkable women of the past. Finding meaning in their experience has become my life's work. God answers our prayers. His promise is sure. Jesus Christ brings us to wholeness and to holiness. Human progress, even within the church, is not undeterred. But I know that the eternal purposes of the Lord shall roll on until all his promises shall be fulfilled. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Jill, thank you so much for the remarkable uh, stories and uh, beautiful words and, and powerful testimony. Um, we are going to be opening this up. Uh, you, you graciously agreed to offer some, some further time here for some questions and some discussion as well. I want to let people know that we'll be keeping an eye on the chat in Zoom, and I'll try to keep, for those of us who are joining us on Facebook, I'll try to keep an eye on uh, any questions that come in uh, in the Facebook chat as well. Um, while we're waiting, uh, let me go ahead and ask my first question. That's the, the joy that I get to, <laughs> to dive right in. Uh, I was really riveted by the, the the account of kind of the discovery of those Relief Society minutes and the effect that you all hoped that it would have, that you that you expected it would have, and some of the resistance that you faced in in that period as well. I think that you said it was 1976, if I remember correctly. Um, and I'm curious if you want to uh, kind of put in put put those moments, those early uh, moments uh, of the late 70s and early 80s in conversation with what's happening with race in the priesthood during that same time period. 
Uh, did that make it feel like uh, the stakes were a little bit higher in thinking about women's authority because there was there had just been, in, in, at least in 1978, the, 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 the revelation or that there was public pressure before 1978 around race in the priesthood? I wonder if you thought about or, or could think about how um, those events kind of swirled together to create, um, I don't know, the stakes of what, what all you were discussing. Um, I, I think that's a, a very insightful comment and, and question. Uh, these, these were challenging times to say the least. We had uh, very fine historians like Lester Bush and Armand Moss raising the question of uh, the priesthood ban and uh, their research was incredible as it came to, to light. Uh, in Leonard's history division, certainly that was discussed. Leonard was uh, forwarding research on other issues. The, the book, Building the City of God, had a lot to do with uh, the United Order and communitarian efforts. Um, at the same time, within the church structure, we see this immense effort at correlation and simplification and uh, such a concerted effort to move the church forward internationally and not complicate the narratives, not complicate the communications. Uh, we see the Relief Society magazine gone um, and the primary magazine gone, things that had been important to women. And uh, you're right. I think these, the, the questions about race and uh, criticism from uh, the outside uh, uh, put people on edge, definitely. And uh, I will say, I, th I think we can see from the work of um, Edward Kimball, especially his, his long article in BYU Studies on um, Spencer Kimball and the, uh, the restoration of priesthood uh, in 78. I think we, we see how complex the inside discussions were it isn't as if church leaders were oblivious to those, uh, those questions and the people who were discussing them. Did that add to the resistance? It, it may have. There, uh, certainly the general board members who presented their question to <laughs> their general authority advisors were, were not, uh, as I said, well-received. Um, so uh, I, I don't know if they felt like it was too much on the plate or if really women's place in the church was set in stone. If you look at those, um, if you look at conference talks from the 1970s, they are really focused on women in the home. Uh, and there is a, a reluctance to support women in the workforce. Uh, in fact, they really made the argument that, look, we have, uh, we have relieved you of your uh, bazaars, your fundraising, your magazine, so that you can focus your efforts in the home. So I, I think, yes, that was part of the initial resistance. I don't know if that answers your question, but those things definitely came together. I, I would like to add here that, Jill, you were an inspiration to me when I first became uh, acquainted with the Latter-day Saints in Cambridge, Mass. It's my introduction to what Mormon women were like, and I thought y'all were like that, but um, it, it is 
it has dawned on me over the decades that my roots were planted in fertile soil because of you and your companions and your the other scholars who were doing the work that I thought was just assumed. And um, I, I owe you such a, a, a debt of gratitude and of vision for me to be able to hold on to what I value and what I originally saw, despite going home for summer vacations between my years at Wellesley College and having the, the uh, other young adult women in my ward there introduced me to fascinating womanhood and some of the other um, volumes that were supposed to be modeling how Mormon women were. And I knew better <laughs> because of you and your, and your friends. And I'm uh, eternally grateful to you for that. Thank you, thank you. you know, I'm, I'm, could, I, could I make just one comment in response to Yes, that? yes. Uh, she has mentioned something that uh, I have neglected to mention, and that is, I think, arguments, uh, debate, the debate about the role of women in the larger United States, the broader society was so rampant at this time. And a lot of it centered on the Equal Rights Amendment and uh, what traditional roles for women versus new uh, public roles and opportunities for women. So the discussion among the Latter-day Saints was certainly part of a larger conversation. I also want to yes. add that I also lived in Magazine Street, partner All three. Right. <laughs> now, I wanted to jump in with a follow-up to what Linda said. The, first of all, thank you for all you did for her because she's so valuable to me. But um, that's, but it actually ties to questions that people are asking in, in the chat, which is the, um, the conversations among women continue. There is a significant number, I don't have any idea of the numbers, but there's a significant pushback from Mormon women that these are things we should not be talking about, that these are not, um, appropriate or that they are gone or that they never were? I mean, there, do you have, um, how, what, what would you say about how to respond, how to have those conversations today in 2021? Uh, I, I would reference uh, Taylor's earlier question about uh, blacks and the priesthood and the lifting of, of, the, of the priesthood restriction ban. Uh, when I look at this, the scholarship that has been done, uh, and I look at the gospel topics essay, for example, uh, Brooke and I were part of a study group the other night that was delving into this topic. And these were by and large people who had not familiarized themselves with the history. And uh, getting the information was uh, incredibly important to them. And it was a, uh, it was a profound and deepening uh, experience that, that caused them uh, to follow President Nelson's counsel to look in their hearts and examine their hearts. Uh, I, I believe this should be true and could be true with women that we need, we need uh, more information. And I don't, I, I know the, the Relief Society documents book uh, is not going to be in 
on every shelf. And it's, it's so big and so weighty that it's, it's not going to be uh, read by everyone. But, but it is a foundation to start to tell stories from a different perspective. And I appreciate people like Joy Jones, who's willing to stand up there and say, oh, you know, I have to admit, I didn't understand this earlier, but I understand it now. I think Sharon Eubank as well has been really clear about trying to talk about accessing the powers of heaven. Uh, women for so many generations were um, taught to honor the priesthood, but not claim the priesthood. And uh, I, I do think it's a, a question of education that will take more than a generation. Uh, for me, I think the stories do so much for opening up possibilities. This is, this is hard because so much in the 19th century, when we think of these stories, we think of women healing. And there are prescriptions against that right now for whatever reason, uh, prescriptions that developed over time. So when we talk about accessing priesthood power or, or uh, exercising priesthood power, women, women don't know what to do. What does that, what does that, what does that mean? Um, and I don't know what it means for men. Maybe men who've had more experience can talk about it more. I know when I taught uh, uh, young women and asked them what the priesthood was, they had only one answer. And that was, that's the power for your dad to give you a blessing. So, um, I think it's time to expand the definition of priesthood, but that you're right, that is hard for people and they resist it. And I run into women, even good friends who say, I don't need the priesthood. I don't, I don't need anything to do uh, with it. So I think the stories and the testimonies and the power itself uh, is important. I remember hearing Carolyn Rasmus speak in, at a study group and uh, her witness was so powerful and so undeniable that I just felt this woman has great power because she has the spirit. And uh, we're all invited to do that. And I, I hope we can uh, do that and convey it. And we need uh, supportive husbands and fathers and bishops like you and my husband and my bishop and others to to uh, acknowledge that and give let us give voice to that. I have I a next question. If Taylor, do you want? I to was go? just going to acknowledge because uh, we didn't get to introduce Linda Hoffman Kimball at the at the top of our program. She came in right after we did all of the announcements. So for those of you who are listening, that's our other uh, the other voice that uh, that gave such a powerful testimony to uh, Jill's influence in Cambridge. Um, uh, yeah, uh, Chris, why don't you go ahead and, and propose the next question? Okay, I, I have two, so I'll put them both and you could decide what to do with them, Jill. Um, you, you spoke about the importance of both inside and outside uh, pressure, and I am very curious about that. You've, you've been the inside and, uh, and handled that beautifully from all I can tell, um, but I know it has caused some challenges and some choices about what you did. Um, 
So I'd like I'd like to draw that out. I, I'm interested in what you think can be done from the inside and what can be, what's the role of the outside um, historian, writer, speaker. Uh, let me stop there because I do have a different question, but that's a yeah. Uh, I think good things are are happening on the inside. Uh, the church history department under Marlon Jensen, Stephen Snow, and now uh, LeGrand Curtis have been an important part of that. I think the the uh, the commitment to transparency is is very important. Uh, we see them coming forward with that wonderful. Uh, Women at the Pulpit, the Discourses of Women, the Emmeline B. Wells Diaries are now uh, online at the Church History site, the Eliza R. Snow Discourses. Uh, to be able to quote women, not just men, in, our, in everything from conference addresses to our sacrament meeting talks is extremely valuable. And these documents and publications uh, make that possible. Uh, on the outside, we have, have seen uh, scholars explore Mormon theology in a way that uh, women working uh, within the church history department or even at BYU have not been as inclined to do. Uh, Barbara Morgan Gardner's recent work on women in the priesthood, I think shows a BYU professor really uh, moving into that theological direction. But I think outside scholars have been much more willing to do that and, and push, uh, push the boundaries. They raise questions. They raise questions that are important for us to consider. Nyland McBain's uh, Women at Church, I think, uh, presented some great ideas for how to be more inclusive. And in the end, some of those have been incorporated into what's happening now in our young women's program or elsewhere. So I, I don't, uh, I, I want to say how much I appreciate that work. I will say also, uh, for me personally, the level of conflict sometimes between outside and inside um, has been painful. It's, it's been painful in relationships with friends. And I am not uh, always a person who can deal with the, the conflict. So uh, I, I removed myself deliberately from some conflicted situations just because it was so personally painful. And uh, I want to recognize the pain too from those who work from the outside and sometimes feel uh, alienated by the institution. Jill, allow me to kind of sum up a couple of questions that uh, that we've got that are kind of asking for your commentary on the current situation, and that sort of is broadly defined as as many people are asking a lot of questions around um, contemporary tensions around the the meaning and scope of what priesthood is, and and where you see some of the hot button issues uh, are right now, uh, uh, including uh, the kind of uh, approach that uh, Elder Oaks gave in his 2014 uh, conference talk, as well as what you would say to many women who still feel a little dissatisfied with where, with the progress that the church has made. Uh, I'll just cite um, 
uh, the research of uh, Jana Reese, who who is who's noted that one of the reason one of the top reasons that people cite for why they left the churches is uh, women's roles and authority in the church. Uh, so it continues to kind of be an ongoing issue. Where do you see that? Uh, where do you sort of see where the church is at in dealing with some of those issues? And uh, what what advice would you give to uh, to people who are kind of struggling with this question? I think we need a better understanding of what transitions involve. As, as we look back at the 1890s and look at the manifesto and the transition of the church out of its commitment to plural marriage, there's just so much disruption and we see dissidents uh, and alternative uh, voices going different directions. Just because something is proclaimed from the pulpit doesn't mean that a transition will happen. Human, human beings are, are not inclined uh, to rapidly accept change. I, with the manifesto, I always picture a train going full speed down the track and coming to a halt and everyone jerked around. And in some ways, I feel that uh, part of the confusion for those who are reluctant to embrace ideas about women in priesthood or those who feel like we haven't gone far enough is a result of being in the midst of a, a great transition. These are shifts in paradigm and they don't rest easily with us. So, uh, President Oak's talk. It's interesting. Brooke, my husband Brooke, taught that uh, talk in priesthood quorum and in 2014. And somebody in his quorum said, Who is this guy? Who's making these statements? And he said, Well, he's a member of the 12. And he said, The, the person said, Well, he must be a very junior member of the 12, or he wouldn't say such things. So, uh, yes, I mean, coming to terms with this, it is a shift in paradigm. And uh, we're in the, the middle of it. I, I love this, the, the Kuhn book on the structure of scientific revolutions. It just does not happen quickly. And that is gonna cause a lot of pain and confusion for a lot of people. Um, I appreciate my friend, uh, the fine scholar, Kathleen Flake, who, who often talks about priesthood, uh, in relation to the blind man and the elephant. Uh, we, we look for a particular aspect of priesthood and think we have it all. Uh, and one says this, one touches the trunk and one touches the leg and one touches the tail and one touches the ear. And we, we think we have the full definition, but, but we don't, we don't have it yet. And, uh, so we all get these, these bits and pieces, but I have great faith that sometime, at some moment in time, these bits and pieces will come together and we will, we will have a better sense of the whole picture. Jill, I'm, uh, I, there are lots of things here and lots of amens and I, you, should, you should know that as we're going as we're having this conversation. But um, I personally have an interest in, I'm, I'm a, I'm a um, what was your word? I'm a litany of lost person. I mean, when I read this, I, I 
I hear litany of loss throughout. And personally, I'm interested, fascinated with, also troubled by the story of taking away, the story of closing down or taking away. But I wonder if that's in a, in a kind of political sense, if that's a useful story to follow through with. That is, I wonder if that story isn't threatening to um, current church leaders, uh, that, to a, a, a history that would um, challenge people and not move the ball forward. If, if the objective is to move forward, maybe that's not one that is um, useful at the moment to explore or to uncover. I, I'm, that's a very negative approach, but I, I see you nodding, so I, you, you understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> no, it's a, it's, it's a, a realistic approach. Uh, I think, though, that, that uh, not having the history there, we see neither the loss. If we don't have the history, we don't see the loss. And if we don't have the history, we don't see the possibilities. And uh, I love that about Latter-day Saint history. I think it is full of possibilities. It gives us this kind of seamless feeling that we can reach into the past and say, there are precedents uh, for this. Uh, I think it's, uh, we see in some of the adjustments around ministering uh, more more responsibility given to Relief Society for charity and welfare work. Uh, and, and that was, as you say, taken away for a long time. It's the, the uh, loss of Relief Society social services was a significant uh, loss. There was, there was no uh, apparent reason that that should be turned over to men uh, instead of women when uh, the department was full of skilled professionals, except that this was the moment in time when everything needed to be connected to some uh, priesthood line. And I think there is a loosening of that, not that we don't all uh, report in these hierarchical lines, but there's no reason for women not to be given responsibility. I wanna tell a, a story that I, I really like. Uh, Women of Covenant was reviewed by two members of the 12 and uh, they hadn't planned to give it to the Relief Society presidency to review. But one of the 12, when he read this, wrote me a note and said something to the effect <laughs> um, that mistakes that have been made in the past will not be repeated and this will go to the Relief Society presidency. Uh, it was an awakening for him. I, I think he might have been thinking of uh, the decision about grain storage, that all the, the women's grain was, told, was sold by the presiding bishopric without informing the women until after the fact. And um, he read that story and felt it keenly. So there are possibilities. I mean, there are, are lessons and important possibilities from the, the past. Thank you.
So uh, a couple, you know, other questions. We've got so many questions, we're not going to be able to get to them all. So maybe we'll, I'll ask a, a few questions here and then a few, uh, uh, and then maybe one more after this as well. Um, this one is from Laurel Ulrich, who's joining us tonight. Uh, what transition are you discussing? It's been almost 60 years since the beginnings of this attempt to clarify the meaning of the priesthood. I think many women have moved on, some of them out of the church, some in but the institutional church hasn't noticed. Uh, that's more of a comment maybe than a question, but you can uh, speak to that. But also I'm wondering if you could expand on um, uh, the, the kind of institutional support that you saw wax and wane for your own projects and for women's history and where you see uh, women's history. Maybe we could talk about priesthood and, and women's roles in the church, but also where you see the role of women's history having, uh, having had its ups and downs in the past several decades. Uh, well, it certainly it, it has uh, had ups and downs, but I, I see uh, a gradual uh, growth and blossoming. Uh, wonderful things are happening right now, both uh, within and outside the institution. Laurel's book was a remarkable pulling together of women's experience and uh, I'm sure Laurel knows, affected many women and deepened their understanding, raised questions that left them uh, exploring their own feelings. It was a great uh, contribution. And Laurel, you're, you're right. It seems like uh, over a 60 year period, we could answer these questions, but I don't know. I don't know. I actually see each generation asking questions anew. Uh, in some ways, you may see the questions of this generation as being exactly the same as they were in the 1970s. Um, I think there's some similarity, but I, I think there is a greater urgency with a new generation and also greater dissatisfaction, uh, in part because the world has changed and uh, women see uh, women in uh, as CEOs of corporations as university presidents, and uh, they see that as different than being the Relief Society general president or uh, primary general president. They, the equivalency for them would be church president or a member of the Quorum of the Twelve. So uh, you're right, there's a discrepancy there that is just not acceptable to uh, many women. Again, I would say, I think the past is full of discrepancies and disappointments. Uh, a, a group of, of people feel they can accept that and others don't. And I, I believe the dissident voices are helpful in uh, raising questions. But as you say, when there's not a, a, a solution or a quick solution, there is, there is this sense of of surrender that it's not worth the fight. For me, I think it's worth the fight. I think it's worth staying in there, uh, but I understand the concern. And your other question was women's history. And I think we, we covered that. Linda or Chris, is there one other question that you wanna to get to before we wrap things up here? What are you working on now? What's, what's next? 
Oh, I didn't want anyone to ask that question. <laughs> you know, I, I picked up Maureen's work on Eliza Arsenault and I've had a few detours in between uh, Eliza's poetry and the Relief Society documents book, but I am working in earnest on that complex and fascinating woman and uh, most appreciative that her discourses are uh, being posted online at the, the church history department's website. It's been rewarding. I think uh, research only uh, deepens or, or uh, brings on complexity. And uh, I'm glad to find Eliza as a human being with uh, weaknesses and great strengths. And it's a powerful story. My uh, son once described me as a, as far as my uh, church uh, participation commitment goes as a committed misfit. <laughs> I, I'll take that. that. That's good. I look forward to uh, a time, hopefully in the not too distant future, where we have enough committed misfits that we, that the people who aren't misfits feel like the misfits. I don't, I don't know if that communicates well, but um, <laughs> Uh, I, I'm always looking for ways to feel less lonely in this uh, journey I've committed to and um, seeking tips from all comers. But this is one way to not feel so lonely is, in fact, I think uh, the, what Dialogue has done this last year with the Gospel Sunday Study Program and with podcasts and with these kind of firesides is one sense of despite us all sitting in separate places with individual screens uh, we really do have much more of a sense of communion than i may get when i'm in post-pandemic times cheek to jowl with the regular um, members of the church i am with well said well said i appreciate and echo those sentiments thank you Jill, thank you again thank you. for your remarkable career and for sharing your stories with us this evening and your insight that you've gained over these many years of working on these uh, these issues, these questions. And uh, I just want to echo that there was a lot of really positive uh, feedback in, in the chat and in the commentary here. Um, and uh, people were really excited about your remarks tonight. Um, we will go ahead and conclude with our, conclu our, with our uh, uh, closing prayer from Brooklyn Durr, and then we'll all just stick around for a couple more minutes after that. Thank you, Taylor. Dear Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we thank thee for this uh, wonderful uh, spiritual community searching for meaning and understanding and raising wonderful questions. We pray that uh, we might all find this meaning in our own way and find a way to contribute to meaningful change in thy kingdom that uh, is pleasing unto thee. We're grateful for this discussion this night and say this humbly in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 All right, that wraps it up. Thank you, everybody. Mm -hmm.